Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Mrs. Wolf. They're buying just one sewing needle? Still, by all means, we must deliver it and wrap it up nicely. I don't want it to look depressing. Yes, I understand the gas will cost more than we make on the needle. I'm not a fool, you know. My late husband Nordstrom Wolf thought I was a fool. One time when he was falling asleep, he said to me, Cha-Cha, I don't like it when you hold the pillow over my face. And I said, Cha-Cha, my name is Augusta Clarabelle, and you, Nordstrom, have confused me with one of your strumpets on the side. And I shot him in the chest with a small, mm, tasteful pistol. It was the most satisfying day of my life. Oh, no, he pulled through, but he never forgot my name again. What were we talking about? Oh, the needle. Listen to me. Someday our dedication to delivering items will drive our glorious department store out of business. And then, 20 years later, there'll be a business where all they do is deliver things. No store. Just things being delivered. Do you want to be around to see that? I know. It's disgusting. This is why we must revel in the days that we have. Retail is royalty, and we will make our customers feel like kings and queens. Now go, and once again assert our greatness. So stressful dealing with people who don't share one's vision. If it weren't for the opium and the Soylent Green, I don't know how I'd make it through the day. Now listen to a show about one of my competitors, Beatrice Fox Auerbach. And now the elevator operator I demoted to an escalator operator... Colin McEnroe. It was a hard blow for me to bear. So, yes, before there was Amazon, there were blue trucks, dark blue trucks from G Fox, and they went everywhere and they delivered everything. The difference, of course, was that there was this incredibly wonderful, beautiful Art Deco store with elegance and grandeur associated with the delivery service. There was this place you went in the first place and picked out things that you would buy, and then because it would be way too much trouble for you to carry them home, they showed up the next day in one of those trucks. So they were they were dark blue, right? I'm not making that Dark blue dark with blue. the outline of the state of Connecticut in white yeah. on the side. They were unforgettable trucks. All right, so we're going to tell you a little bit about that store and a lot about the woman behind the store uh, today. There is, in fact, an exhibit, Beatrice Fox Auerbach, The Woman, Her World, and Her Wardrobe. It's on view at Yukon's Jorgensen Gallery. You have uh, the luxurious chance, in the <laughs> if you go really fast, to see it tomorrow or Saturday or Sunday or Monday. And then you have the chance on Tuesday to help them take it down. But there's also good news about the future of this exhibit. But let me tell you who our guests are. The voice that you just heard was that of Bill Foudy. He's the author of many books about Connecticut, including Connecticut Miscellany, ESPN, The Age of Reptiles, Cow Parade, and more. Uh, Elizabeth Abbey is with us, former director of public outreach at the Connecticut Historical Society. In that position, she created a program called From Hula Hoops to High Fashion, G. Fox in the 1950s. Laura Crow is a professor of costume history and design at UConn, director of the UConn Historical and Costume and Textile Collection, and the curator for Beatrice Fox Auerbach, the woman, her world, and her wardrobe, which I think I just mentioned to you. So um, we are going to talk a little bit about the history uh, of this family. And so, uh, Laura, I'll start with you, and maybe we, we 
we, we can't start with Beatrice Fox Auerbach because that's hardly the beginning of the story, right? The, uh, the ascendancy of the Fox retail dynasty begins when? Well, there's a, her grandfather, who was Gerson Fox, left Germany when he was 19 years old to come to America to make his fortune. He came with his brother. And he was a, a wheelbarrow peddler, as many of these Jewish merchants were at that time. And he cleverly discovered that there was a new burgeoning middle class that wanted to buy fancier goods. So he started peddling fancy goods. And he did so well, he and his brother both, that they started a store on Main Street in Hartford that was very close to the Connecticut River so that they could bring the goods up the river and sell them at the store. And, and so, but it didn't stop there, right? I mean, no. that was just the beginning. That was just the beginning. That was the first store. And then in 1917, the store burned down. And uh, actually, Beatrice Fox, this is very complicated because she had already moved to Utah with her new husband, George Auerbach, who also ran a department store with the department store family. And her mother came from the Stearns family who had a department store. So all three of these big families ran department stores, and they all started as peddlers. This this fire, by the way, I mean, this is a bill, a huge fire that really I, it basically burned the store to the ground, right? Yeah. It, the whole thing went. Yeah, and and um, the whole block yeah. went. But they somehow or other, uh, I don't know who knows what story, but <laughs> I assume you you all know all the stories. So yes. they some they did keep this going, right? One of the things they did, I think, was Fox met his employees. I think at the warehouse, he said he'd keep paying them, and, and that this was just going to somehow or other keep going. Yeah, pick it up. You can pick it up. Yeah, the issue was in 1917. People came out of the theater. It was in January, and the store was up in flames. They never really found out what caused the fire. But the question then was, do we move out of the city? Do we get out of the retail business? What's our next step? And they estimated that more than 80 to 90 percent of the customers returned to the store to pay their bills. They didn't have to. Yeah. There were no customer records left. There were no products left. The other stores in Connecticut, if there was in Hartford, if there were any open space, they allowed foxes to continue business. So you saw women's clothes being stole, sold in another storefront. I think menswear was sold in the old state house bill. <laughs> so the city of Hartford wanted so much for that store to survive that foxes management said, we're going to stay, and they continued to pay their employees the entire time they were rebuilding and by 1918, they had that new 11-story fireproof building ready for business. It was really remarkable. This, yeah, this is a um, – just to give a sense of a loss, too. I was doing a little research on this today. So the loss in, at that time in 1917 dollars was $750,000. That was at a time when I think average income in Connecticut was somewhere between one and $2,000. So, I mean, the, the loss was huge. Yeah, Laura, what were you going to say? I was going to say that, you know, the, even though the public were behind him, the press called it uh, Fox's folly and said it would be impossible for him to rebuild in a year. But he – Proved them wrong, and like a good Jewish businessman, he was open in December for the Christmas rush. And so um, we we have to talk about this new store. By the way, as we're going along here, uh, you can call in. We're live here in the afternoon. If you have your own memories, your own thoughts, give us a call eight six zero two seven five seven two six six eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. You may also tweet us uh, at WNPR Colin. I should also mention we have here a live audience. A very uh, pleasant-looking young people. I don't actually know who they are or why they're here, but they, uh, 
they were just left here, I think, by their parents. <laughs> it's kind of sad, actually. But so, um, but anyway, they're here uh, in the background, and who knows what they'll do. Uh, but I just I thought I should at least acknowledge their existence. So uh, we have to kind of talk about what this store was like. And Bill, you know, for for people the age of, for example, these lovely young people who are here today, it's, I mean, other than what they've seen in movies, I think it's kind of hard to imagine the kind of store that this was. I mean, first of all, it was just aggressively beautiful and, and grand, particularly on some of its lower floors, right? Well, and after 1935, when it got its whole Art Deco makeover and that whole wonderful marquee, but it was amazing as a kid, the height, mm-hmm. the glistening, the chrome, just and, and everything was polished. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at Christmas time, they would borrow from the Wadsworth Athenaeum some of the great extraordinary artwork, the Frangelico angels, etc., and they would all be in the windows. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a moment, and as a kid, you never forgot it, partly because you really didn't want to go there for lunch with your mother or grandmother or whatever, because you had to dress as if you were going to church. Right. And, and Elizabeth, I don't know if uh, your childhood included a, a visit to the Connecticut room. The Connecticut room, was that was sort of the tea room, right? And right. where the ladies, would, the ladies who lunched right. would go there. And they would go there in, in, in gloves and hats right. and stuff like that, right? right? You know, when I did the program on G. Fox in the 1950s, I had to have grown up in Hartford and have gone to G. Fox or they would have thrown me out of the room because this was their everybody's personal history. And what I remember most was it was never a run-in-the-store, get-an-iron kind of experience. It was an all-day experience to shop downtown. First of all, your mother would tell you a week before, and it was like going to Disney World. It was so exceptional. But you'd tell you a week before, we're going uptown. I lived in Wethersfield. We'd take the bus from Wethersfield uptown and it would be magical you'd be as bill says you would be all dressed up you'd go through those revolving doors you would get on those escalators and every time the escalator op- um you went to the next floor it was a magical experience and yes i do remember eating there because you would always have lunch at foxes mm. but i didn't we didn't have the money to eat in the connecticut room i ate in the luncheonette yeah. and the luncheonette had circular chairs and you would stand behind other mothers and their daughters while they were still eating right. and you'd sit down and another mother and daughter would stand behind you but then you'd go on to the next floor you would spend the entire day in that store right and and there was some way Laura in which this this was an era of a, where a store was a store and, and and but more than that I mean first of all it was an experience the way that she's saying that that you would spend the whole day there you would have your meal there you would do many things there. You, it wasn't like pulling up to the mall, racing in and getting something and coming out. But more than that, there was a sort of sens- sense that this was a civic center. I mean, there was an auditorium on the 11th yes, floor. Right? one of the things, well, she built a beauty salon, for yeah. one thing, which re- attracted women. But then she built, when she redid everything, she put in something called Sentinel Hill Hall. And that was a place to have lectures from people who were visiting the city. So he, she was very interested in educating women, particularly. Particularly the women who worked in the stores could come to these lectures, and so could the public. They could go spend a day shopping and then go be enlightened at the end of the day by people like Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, they weren't small names. Right. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt spoke there, and, and I think sort of got to know Beatrice Fox Auerbach, right? Yeah, they became very good friends, actually. And I think it stands to reason they were both early widows, and they both had political activism in their history, and they wanted to continue with that. They both were really interested in the United Nations and peacemaking 
and also the World Health Organization was something they were both really interested in. I found one list of uh, other people who had appeared there. It included Edith Head, Bob Mackey, Betty Friedan, Gloria Vanderbilt, Bill Blast, Diane von Furstenberg, Sophia Loren, and Angela Davis. Yeah. There's a diverse... <laughs> Add to that Zsa Gabor, yeah. <laughs> Gloria Swanson, and Bob Hope. <laughs> well, I, I remember I, was, I started out as a newspaper reporter at The Current in 19... I was an intern in 75... Um, and, and a full-time reporter in 76. And, I mean, it was a place where you'd be sent over to interview somebody, somebody interesting who was in town. Well, they would be at this department store, I mean, whether they were an author, author or a perfume expert or something like that. I guess, you know, one thing that we're not saying right now is how we sort of skipped over one thing, which is how a woman came to be running the store, right? I mean, uh, Laura, it wasn't necessarily axiomatic that a woman was going to run a department store. No. This was an accident of... of, of Tragedy and death, right? Yes. Uh, she had married a man named George Auerbach, as we said, at Salt Lake City. And they had moved back in 1917 so that he could be the secretary treasurer for the store while his father-in-law was rebuilding. And he had ulcers, and he ultimately died of a coronary thrombosis at a very early age, and that left her a widow. And one of the things – she had already started kind of working at the store, and she had taken some business classes. But once he died, she started spending her time regularly at the store at her father's side. And, you know, she was very interested, and the family originally thought it would be a good thing for her to get over her terrible sorrow at the loss of her husband, but it became much more than that. Yeah. And she really did take control. You know, she became the name and face of yeah. the store in a way that I think nobody else ever had, the name G. Fox notwithstanding. Here's Lawrence calling in from West Hartford. Hi, Lawrence. Hey, how are you? Good. You're on the air. Uh, yeah, you were asking for memories of uh, G. Fox, and I just wanted to mention I'm in my mid-50s. I grew up in uh, Vernon, Connecticut, and um, still on the wall of my mom's house are photographs of uh, our family taken with uh, one daughter and then two daughters and uh, ultimately five kids. Every single one of them was taken at G. Fox. Uh, up on the, I don't know what floor it was. It was upstairs somewhere. But, uh, of course, in all the photographs, too, maybe this was the time in the 60s or 70s, but we're all wearing dresses and suits, suits with ties or bow ties. So, uh, like you said, it was a fancy place, very big uh, dress-up event to go there. But um, they live on on my mom's walls. Yeah, that's a great point. And again, it goes back to Bill's point about, yes, having to dress as though you were going to church, which you kind of were, right? This was almost <laughs> like a church. It was it was meant, I, th- you know, just the scale of it. First of all, this was a place, and we'll talk more about this as we go along, that was very, very geared towards a kind of customer service that basically essentially doesn't exist anymore. Um, and, and so the customer was king. But there was something about the scale of the place that also suggested to you that that there was something bigger than you, and it was that store. Well, the cathedral-like entrance. Uh, the other thing was every clerk at Mrs. Auerbach's direction had a little pad and a pencil. So if a customer asked for something and they didn't have it, mm-hmm. it would be written down. Uh, I will tell you that my brother and I only went once, and every other invitation we figured out either how to fall in the brook or something <laughs> because it was – no. You know, that get no, we do that on Sunday, but there, no, we don't care. 
but but I think also that notion of this all-encompassing store where, mm-hmm. you know, as you were saying, you'd go there, and yeah, you might go to the beauty salon. You might go there. You'd probably go there and have lunch. Maybe there, you'd go to the – apparently there was a photography gallery or something like that or a photo studio. that I, I mean, there was sort of everything there. It was everything that you wanted, right? Right. What, what you also had in both Moses and in Beatrice are managers who were on the floor. Yes. They were very, very involved in every aspect of that store. She would come in in the morning. Early, she would have her hair done in the beauty salon, and then she would spend most of the day on the floor. And if there was a department where it was backed up, and the two most popular were actually the hosiery department and stationery, she would get behind herself, and she would take sales. She was also determined for the customers to feel it was perfectly clean, and they were well cared for. So there's always the story that she had a white glove, and she would walk by a counter, and she would wipe it off with her white glove. And woe be to the sales girl that had a dusty um, countertop. But she was very involved. She knew who the student, who the um, sales girls were. She knew what the merchandise was. And I think that's what made the store what it was because she had there was management that was very, very involved in making every single customer and every association feel great. And she also made her employees feel like they were part of a family. So if you're happy in your job, you also show that in how you deal with the customers. Yeah, well, while preparing for this show today, I discovered that the other person in the house, I don't know this has ever been mentioned to me before, she used to work at G-Fox when she was very, very young uh, as a teenager. And she remembers that... Um, that Mrs. Auerbach would be sort of at the end of the day frequently there at the exit on Talbot Street as people, as the employees were walking out, she would be saying goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. goodbye. It just sort of doesn't really happen. You know, the CEO just sort of saying, bye, bye, enjoy your evening. Um, All right, yeah, Laura. Like once a month she had a a lunch with different members of her employee month. I mean, they she mixed it all up, and they all got to know each other. And I mean, how often does that happen today? And she apparently had kind of a corner table in that Connecticut room, too, where she was there, there having lunch there, at least keeping an eye on things every day. What were you going to say, Bill? I uh, just want to bring up that, for example, when Frank Simpson, who was a great civil rights guy in Hartford, he went to Mrs. Auerbach and Ned Allen, late 50s, and said, I really think you should start employing African-American and other minorities in the store, on the main floor. And Mrs. Auerbach's reply, which she often used, was, we will not affect change if we do not participate. Mm -hmm. And she and Ed Al, the others, you know, this changed the landscape. But Mrs. Auerbach, having been discriminated against as a woman, never invited to join the Hartford Club because she was Jewish, whatever, worked tirelessly for the whole, with the Episcopal Bishop across the street, Bishop Gray, Ned Allen, Corvette. So one needs to see her not just singularly as part of G. Fox. Mm-hmm. And she reminds me of Governor Grasso. When Governor Grasso, after elected, was asked, did you want to be called chairman or chairwoman? And Ella said, chairman's fine. I can do the job just as well as any man probably better. But Mrs. Arbach was very much in charge. All right. So uh, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to uh, say more about this. If you have your own G. Fox or uh, Beatrice Fox Auerbach memories, 860-275-7266. Feel free to call in, 860-275-7266. And, yes, at some point in the show today, we will discuss the rumor, the thing that people always say. And I don't think our panel entirely is 100% in agreement about the answer to this, this question. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you soon will. 
I think we might be back. We are. We are back. I can tell that we're back. We are our back, as it were. Uh, so uh, it's time to talk about G Fox and Beatrice uh, Fox Auerbach. That's what we've been talking about right now. So w- as we left off here, and let me first of all remind you who is on the air with me. Also, a lot of people calling in right now at 860-275-7266. And doubtless also tweeting. Actually, one tweet we got was from Habroom. Uh, who says, great record collection, uh, great record section. Bought my first album there in 1967, Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced? <laughs> Life-changing. Um, actually, I tended to go to Corvettes, though, instead. There was a store uh, down the street called Corvettes. Where, uh-huh. Across so, the street. Across the street, yeah. Cheaper. Well, yeah, records are a little cheaper. Yeah, yeah who said <laughs> that? That's true. Um, all right, so with us, Laura Crow is professor of costume history and design at UConn and the curator for Beatrice Fox Auerbach, The Woman, Her World, and Her Wardrobe. Uh, and this is an exhibit which will close at the Jorgensen on Monday. Monday will be the last day that you can see it, but uh, we may have uh, good, good news about where you could – but just go see it there. I mean, uh, forget our good news. Uh, Elizabeth Abbey uh, is former director of public outreach at the Connecticut Historical Society. In that position, she created a program called From Hula Hoops to High Fashion, G. Fox in the 1950s. Bill Fowdy is the author of so many books about Connecticut history uh, that I could not tell you about them uh, all, and he's been involved with many of the major – Uh, cultural and humanities-oriented institutions in Connecticut, which will be one of the ways in which he tells us just in a few minutes why Beatrice Fox Auerbach, uh, although she was an incredible philanthropist, one of the real backbones of eleemosynary behavior in Hartford, did not support the Mark Twain House. But that story is is yet to come. Uh, we, We do want to talk a little bit more about, I mean, she really was, Laura, at the vanguard of employing African Americans in uh, I mean, and, and sort of not in back of the store. One thing about this, this, this store had this incredible workforce, only about a third of which the public saw. The, the other two-thirds were, you know, cooking and shipping and just doing all this back-of-the-store store kind of stuff. But she, she was hiring African-Americans very early for front-of-the-store interaction with customers at a time when elegant department stores kind of really weren't doing that. Yeah, she started in 1945 with a woman named Martha Taylor Shaw, who was a civil rights activist, and she asked her to help develop an African-American positions of employment and how to make it grow. So she was very interested in promoting African-Americans from the very beginning. And, in fact, this man, the gentleman we were talking about, who was in the toy store, store toy, sorry, he was in the toy um, department, became the ch- fire chief ultimately. Right. Because he, Stewart, kept, yeah. he kept being promoted and promoted until he became a, a leader of the whole community. But one of the other things I think is important is she employed handicapped people way before anyone else did. Mm-hmm. She guaranteed anybody who came out of the uh, war, World War II, with an honorable discharge a job at G. Fox, including handicapped people, and she would find a way to employ them. I mean, that's extraordinary. And she would on Sundays often have kids from the Newington Home for Crippled Children to her house for lunch, and she never talked about it. Mm-hmm. The um, I mean, one way that she was able to employ these people from these subgroups was she 
basically employed everybody, right? I mean, <laughs> weren't you saying, Laura, basically everybody you talk to is, yeah. says, oh, yeah, I worked at Jukebox. Uh, but it is the story that I'm familiar with is that John Stewart was an elevator operator, not the guy who hosts The Daily Show, but he was an elevator operator, African-American man, and she one day was on the elevator, and she said, you know, I like you, and you're very courteous, and you're very, you're very good with the, the customers. I'd like to move you to the toy department. Uh, and so she moved him to the toy, toy department. He became... Um, a, a supervisor, and yes, then he became the city's first ever black fire chief. Um, but uh, but Elizabeth Abbey, you have other stories of, of yeah, notables. I, I met. A, I was speaking at Sentinel Hill Hall, and I met a man who had been a elevator operator. He was African American elevator operator, and he said then he was promoted to a delivery truck driver, and he said. Fox's was the best employer he ever had and treated him more fairly than any job he had subsequently. Also, she was a lifetime member of the NAACP, and at the Connecticut Historical Society, there is the plaque that she had proudly in her office showing that membership. But in addition to African Americans and blacks, of course, after World War II, you had all of those European immigrants. Many of them came to Hartford, and they didn't know English, but if you could if you could be in the pack most men went to the packing department or the delivery department and women went into the alterations department and they said it was like a little united nations where people were speaking italian and greek and all sorts of different languages and it's really where they started in the city it's where they learned english and it's where they sort of assimilated into society is um working in G. Fox in the alterations department. So she was really in the vanguard as far as hiring people. You could also, I think, if you were an employee there, buy your meals kind of out of the same kitchen that was supplying the restaurants, but at cost, right? I mean, you, yeah. you basically got a, on a, a lunch at cost uh, from the same food that all the fancy people outside were eating. Yeah, that happened because she went to Russia and discovered that in Russia they were helping their people eat for reasonable prices within this giant department store. So she decided to do that in America. Listen, we've got a lot of calls coming in here. Let's talk to, we may get uh, more oral history here. It could be incorporated somehow into one of these exhibits. Here's Bill from Rocky Hill. Hi, Bill. You're on the air. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Hearing you talk about G. Fox brings back a lot of memories. Both my my mother's father uh, worked for G. Fox. He was a buyer. And I remember him talking about taking the train into the garment district in New York twice a week. He bought uh, women's clothes, uh, coats, and my mother's, uh, my father's mother worked on the switchboard, and I remember my grandfather talking about how wonderful a woman she was. She was a tough taskmaster, but she was also a very generous woman. I remember him talking about issues with my aunts and uncles and illnesses, and she she was more concerned about their well-being than him being on the job and, you know, doing his job. He, she wanted him to take time off to make sure that his family was um, taken care of and getting well. And I, I just remember hearing him talk about that. And, I'm, you know, it was a destination. We didn't have malls, you know, back when I was growing up. And I remember us getting dressed with Grandma and taking the, the bus downtown to meet Grandpa for lunch. And it was like big city. It was just, you know, just hearing talk about it. Those These are, aren't here anymore. 
You know, it's you absolutely know. the case. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned the buyer because, I mean, I was saying this before we went on the air, Laura, that one of the things that always fascinated me was, okay, so here you've got G Fox. And there were other stores. There was Sage Allen. There, was, there were some other stores. But G Fox really was kind of the epicenter. And it meant really that these buyers who did go into New York on a regular basis and, and, and Beatrice Fox Auerbach herself went into New York on a regular basis, but also every morning – uh, she, uh, for a while, one of her assistants was Ann Ucello, who became the first woman mayor of Hartford. But they would take the New York papers and they would spread them all out and they would look at what was selling and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I think I grew up in a world in which fashion choices were very heavily dictated by this one store and its buyers. Yeah, and you know, she did some really clever marketing. I mean, she took all of the beauty queens from the past year and in the autumn they would have a parade with all the more you know, fashionable costumes, not costumes, sorry, clothing of the day. Mm -hmm. And that was a great way to reach out to all of the teenagers, for Mm -hmm. instance. And then she brought them in early. And they also, uh, many people worked there. It was their first job. You get that time after time after time. Um, Hold hold your thought for a second, Elizabeth, because Kevin uh, has to go pretty soon, so I want to get him up on the air here. This is Kevin calling from uh, Weathersfield. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Kyle. How are you doing? What's uh, what's on your mind? Well, uh, I was just driving around. I heard your show. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my recollections, I'm 61. We live in the South End. Uh, I had twin sisters when I was two. I figured, uh, because a lot of other things came to our house in the G Fox truck, that that's how they got there as well. <laughs> so the, True uh, story. the G- and, yeah, you. And oftentimes something would be delivered from G Fox. If my mom didn't like it, two or three days later, another truck would come and take it away. So I think we got the two sisters. Yeah. But the G Fox truck would be coming soon to take one of them back. <laughs> right. So the G Fox truck as store. And Elizabeth, that was sort of another part of this service was that you if you didn't like something, you know, they they not only did you have did you, could you give it back? But you didn't have to bring it back. Somebody would come and get it for you, right? Oh, it's it's not apocryphal at all that yeah. if you ordered a spool of thread and you live in Fairfield County, the truck would deliver that spool of thread at no charge. And then if it didn't match the curtains that you were sewing, then they would come back and pick them back up. But I went, wanted to mention something about the buyers because yeah. the G Fox buyers were the very best in the business. If you were a buyer from G Fox, you could get a job in retail anywhere in the country. You were that well known. And what they would insisted, what Beatrice insisted that they do is that they had to be on the floor. So they had to know, they had to meet customers, they had to know what was selling. And every Saturday, the big sales day, they would meet with the sales girls and say, okay, what do people want? Then Monday morning, they were on a plane to Europe and they saw the many vendors that they had in England and Italy and all over the world, or they were in New York City buying what the customer wanted. And what Beatrice insisted on was if you were buying, let's say, shoes, They had to be in that style in every size and in every color. She didn't want anyone to come to that store expecting to buy something, and it wasn't going to be there. And when she visited other stores, that was her major complaint, saying, hey, if I wanted that dress in a size 8, how come you don't have it? She was a stickler for that, and she passed that on to the buyers. One of her actually best buyers was... um, Oh, the head of Bergdorf, Bergdorf Goodman. Neemark. Neemark. Ira Neemark, who went on to become the CEO of Bergdorf's in New York, and he attributed much of what he knew and his exp- at his experience as, a, as her mentoring him as a buyer for G. Fox. It was really in the vanguard. Right. I was saying to Bill as uh, the growing up, if, if you were sort of going to do like a diorama of uh, like a l- little boy's 
uh, from the greater heart, from central Connecticut circa 1960. I mean, we would all be dressed kind of the same way. And there was a guy named Dick Ballard who was the buyer for, for children's stuff, and I think maybe especially for boys' stuff, so that if our parents were going to buy us, and uh, the pictures of me in these absurd wool coats with a matching hat and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, um, but anyway, that's, you look the way that Bill, that, that Dick Ballard uh, decided that we were all going to look, and that obviously, as you pointed out, Bill, which is also, was also going to sell well. I mean, these weren't purely aesthetic choices. No, this was it was this was meant to be uh, successful retail. Nor yeah, did yeah. we get to pick out what we would like to wear. Oh no, that that was unheard of. Yeah, no. Uh, what were we going to say? And it's a really interesting anecdote that I heard and that someone brought to one of the exhibitions that I've done. And, and uh, he said that his mother was Hungarian. His grandmother or her mo- or his mother was Hungarian, and she worked in one of the departments. And Beatrice noticed that she had a, a wonderful sense of taste and a very European style. But she couldn't speak English, so she assigned her a person to work with her, and that woman became a buyer until she could learn to write and speak English. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me grab another call here. We've got a Joyce in West Hartford. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Colin. Um, I, I wanted to just make sure somebody called in and, and talked about the magic of the 11th floor toy department. Mm-hmm. And I don't – you must have gone up there yourself, but um, as kids, we went up there. But then as we got married, we'd bring our children there, and – like my son is 40 and still talks about the little um it was at christmas time a little shop that was just for the children that it they just kind of constructed it where parents would sit outside and wait for them and uh, he and his sister would just go in there and and shop around for christmas gifts that would be secret you know for their mom and dad so i i don't know it's just all, they they went out of their way to make things really special and at 19 I worked in that record department you're talking about myself. So it was like, uh, I should remember the name of the manager, but they were just, they they made it their business to have everything, you know, that you needed at the time in records, too. Pretty good book department, too. Uh, Elizabeth Abbey, uh, we have to talk about the toy department, right? I mean, and just as FAO Schwartz is just closing right now on the giant piano, I mean, one of the real last, you know, garrisons of that kind of big department store you know, retail toy experience is about to go bye-bye in New York City. But this was a pretty iconic place itself, too. Well, I'm so glad she called in because it reminded me that at the Connecticut Historical Society, there's this very small ephemeral button, and it says, I met a gnome at G. Fox. And what you would do, this is so remarkable to me, that as a parent, as she said, you would bring your child into G. Fox and your child would disappear with your credit card and a gnome <laughs> into some, you know, hinterland of G. Fox. And the purpose was that they would then shop around to find you a Christmas present. But you kind of ask yourself, in this day and age, would you really let no. your kid go in the back with your money with a gnome? But it was perfectly acceptable because it was G. Fox. But, yes, cre- Christmas at G. Fox was, I think, why people all over the state of Connecticut knew that store. Because the holiday did not begin until you came to G. Fox. And what you would do first is you would line up on State Street or Church Street so you could see the marquee, which was absolutely exceptional, where it had oh, all of the various um, colonial buildings from all over the state were depicted there. Then you would go in, and the first floor would open into the most beautifully decorated building uh, space. And then you would go up to the toy department, which was the boys always remember the Lionel train set 
You yeah. must have wanted to go there then, Bill. Huh? We Not did, for clothes, we, we but for the toy department. We didn't have to dress up for that. No, yeah. you didn't. But the other thing is that little Christmas shop where you went, mm-hmm. the stuff was very reasonably priced. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very important. She wasn't going to gouge the parents. No. That was not the point. <laughs> and so the stuff was really 2 or $3. I mm-hmm. mean, it was very carefully done, something your parents might want, mm-hmm. but not, you know, the $250 whatever. And I think there were activities, like even when it wasn't Christmas, I, I think I read that there was like a life-size Shirley Temple uh, up there and kids would dance around and stuff like that. And so there was a Cinderella yeah. um, carriage, life-size of Cinderella. All right. Yeah, so I'm going to grab another call or two. Uh, we're talking about Beatrice Fox Auerbach. And, I mean, if you watch the show, Mr. Selfridge, why are you watching that show? But anyway, uh, with Jeremy Piven, it's it's that kind of experience. I mean, he's doing it in London, obviously, but it's the the kind of environment that we're talking about here. This store that had the unmistakable stamp of uh, of a particular retailer. Anyway, here's uh, Jim. Hi, Jim. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. How are you? Good. Um, yeah, I was just uh, listening. I came on late and listening to your to your show. And my father worked at G Fox for over 25 years in the sporting goods and. Um, actually ran the uh, the ski shop as well. So as kids growing up, it was you know it was just just grand to be part of that, um, to be able to go down. And once we reached a certain age, we were able to. I grew up in Wethersfield, be able to hop on the bus and go down and spend Saturdays with my father. And you know we have a lot a lot of memories of uh, of uh, when when the, you know the athletes used to come in mm-hmm. um, because they were all sponsoring. You know, Jansen and whatnot, and this is when the athletes weren't making millions of dollars and they needed to have an off-season job, so we'd get to go down. And, you know, I was able to, my brothers and I were able to hang out and meet people like Frank Gifford and, and uh, professional golfers, et cetera. So it was, um, it was just really a grand thing. And, um, you know, so much of what uh, what was great about for my father was it was such a family-run atmosphere as well. You know, we'd get invited as kids to go over to uh, uh, Mrs. Arbach's house and swim in her pool, uh, participate in picnics and all sorts of things. Um, you know, it was really great. It was really just a whole lot of fun for us kids. Um, and it was a great place for my dad to work as well. Um, you just triggered a memory for me, Jim, of meeting Jim Palmer there. Remember when Jim Palmer was doing, like, underwear? I think it was underwear. It was, it was like, for jockey or something. And, and it, it was, like, men's underwear. Except that there was this line of women. I was there as a journalist. <laughs> there was this line of women there in the men's underwear department to meet Jim Palmer uh, that was that snaked around and around and around. I'd forgotten all about it. Until you said the thing about athletes, I'd forgotten about Jim Palmer. Hey, we're going to go to a break pretty soon, but uh, Bill Foudy, as promised, we should say, first of all, Beatrice Fox Auerbach, an incredible philanthropist. I mean, there's just, you know, so many things around here, institutions around that benefited from her, and then ultimately a tremendous amount of the family fortune, I think, became one of the huge funds within the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, I mean, just on and on. You name all kinds of things. But the Mark Twain house, what was up with her and Mark Twain? Uh, when I was working there, I was in high school. I was the museum guy, I know, the director, and when there was this solicitation envelope that needed to be delivered to her, and the trustee that was supposed to take it was sick, so... Here I am, a senior in high school, and I'm the one now delivering it to Prospect Avenue. And she answered the door. She knew I was coming. And we sat in the sunroom, and she read it all. And she said, this is a terrific proposal, but I cannot fund the Mark Twain House. My grandfather told me 
about Mark Twain, Samuel L. Clemens, and how he had bought a whole bunch of stuff. It had been delivered to the house. He refused to pay the bill, and he refused to refund, return the goods. And I turned to Ms. Auerbach and I said, that story is totally believable. Because <laughs> well, if you knew much about him, yeah, yep. Yeah. But she said, I have, however, I cannot because of my grandfather, my self-support. I have directed, however, my daughters to support because I really admire what you're doing. And the daughters became very big oh, yeah. in the world of Hartford Philanthropy, too. Uh, Zach's going to go here. I'm going to uh, take his call. We're going to grab a break. When we come back, we okay. still haven't discussed the rumor. All right, Zach, you're on the air. Hello. Except I don't. Uh, can I hear you, Zach? Uh, talk again, because I'm having trouble hearing uh, you. Hello. Yeah. Go ahead. You're uh, on the air. Oh, hi. Um, uh, I grew up in the G. Fox family every year for school clothes and Christmas. And uh, I guess in the waning uh, years of G. Fox, after they moved out to the mall, um, I uh, ran back to Connecticut because, unfortunately, my mom passed away, and I was in Connecticut with. No easy clothes and no money at all. Um, I, and so I got to um, G Fox with my mother's store credit card in hand and uh, found out uh, that it had been expired for years and years. Um, the clerk in the men's department uh, set me up with a suit, got it fitted for me, and sent the bill to my mom's estate. Uh, <laughs> so I just typified G Fox. Um, and I wanted to tell you about it. All right. that's Well, that's service. Uh, that's a different kind of service. All right. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we have to tell a little bit of the story about why there isn't a G Fox store anymore and about why things are sometimes said to be as they are. Ladies Apparel, Toys, Show Credits. Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Jules Lefebvre. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Jeremy Piven. For show pages, articles, and the Faith Middleton Show staff's recipe for crustless cucumber sandwiches, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose prepares for Sharknado 4. And now... Back to Colin. That's right. Tomorrow's our culture weekly culture roundtable. The news, and we have a fine panel awaiting you: Carolyn Payne, James Hanley, and Irene Papoulis. Meanwhile, as we're talking about G Fox, the store, and Beatrice Auer, uh, Fox Auerbach, the woman behind the store, we sent one of our intrepid interns, Allison Ehrenreich, out to the location of the old store. Here's what she found. Do you know the building we're standing next to? This used to be the G Fox Company. I used to come here when I was a um, teenager, like. Run the holidays has always been a busy place. What was it like? Oh, it was great, man. You never have to go to Buckland Hills or West Farm Mall or any of those malls. You know, right here in Hartford, you get everything just like you would get in New York or you know any other big city. Do you have a favorite memory of coming to G Fox? Um, shopping, and as a kid coming here to see the um, Santa Claus and all the festivities they had here. Very nice store. Miss it a lot. I think it was the the solo of um, downtown. 
The soul of downtown. That's probably just about right. Uh, one of our guests here is Laura Crow. She's a professor of costume history and design at UConn, and she's the curator of Beatrice Fox Auerbach, The Woman, Her World, and Her Wardrobe. This is uh, an exhibition that's up in the Jorgensen Galleries uh, over at UConn right now. But you have good news, Laura, right? Yes, actually, um, you know, it's been great because it's been at the same place as uh, Connecticut Repertory Theater. So all of those audiences were able to see the show this summer. It brought in 150 people a day. There's a huge interest in this woman. And fortunately, when it closes, it's going to open again in February, from February till March at the Connecticut Historical Society, which is really where it should be because they have the hugest collection of memorabilia about G. Fox in the city. All right. So we have to deal with capital T, the capital R, rumor. And so what the rumor is, and, and everybody who's ever lived in Hartford has heard it from multiple sources, it's acquired the status of this kind of received secret truth, although I've never seen a shred of proof for it one way or another, is that the reason that the I-84, I-91 interchange is as unwieldy as it is, and was even more unwieldy uh, in, a, in an earlier iteration, was because Beatrice Fox Auerbach uh, had somehow or other influenced the design of this particular interstate interchange in such a way as to sort of move traffic toward her store or, or, or next to her store. So, um, and really, I mean, everybody hears this. So, uh, Bill, uh, I know you, you're a doubter, right? You don't think this is true. I'm not a doubter. I know the truth. Yeah. When they were laying out <laughs> I-84, having first planned to wipe out the high school so the feds would buy a new school for the city, they then used the bulldozers, the answer to urban plight, and literally plowed it through the poorest neighborhoods to connect to the Bulkley Bridge. Mrs. Auerbach, Ned Allen of Sage Allen, Lane Tryon of Stackpole, the Danucci's, Kafloss, all went to look at the plans. Mm. What they discovered was coming from the west to east, there was an exit up by the Mark Twain house. In fact, some of its ramps are still there, not connected. And the next exit was in East Hartford. Mm. The only purpose of the highway was to get you from hither to yon. And remember, back then, there were little markers saying exit three. There were no gas, food, attraction, no, mm. nothing that would bother your driving. <coughs> Mrs. Auerbach, Ned Allen, Dower of the Chamber, Art Lumsden all said, you'll kill the city. Mm -hmm. There's no point in our staying. We're finished. But now the problem came, okay, so we need some exit ramps. But they had now designed this thing through the poorest parts, which have very narrow two-lane roads. Oh, Christmas, we're going to have cars backing up on the highway. And you can imagine Kish Commissioner Chagru and others going, what are we going to do? And so a whole bunch, but you have to understand, they'd already run the highway mm -hmm. to connect to the Bulkley, so it practically was in G. Fox's to begin with. But now we need all these exit ramps. Mrs. Auerbach would never have been a single player. Mm -hmm. She knew she was very good. But she also knew if you didn't have Corvettes and Stackpoles and Lane and Lens Florist and Sage Allen and all, if you were the only store, you had a problem. Mm -hmm. Because the people coming for X would, yeah, if Y was there, they'd check it out. When Constitution Plaza is done, she extends the whole store on the Market Street to embrace Constitution Plaza. So it is totally unfair and totally uncharacteristic to nail her with this. Talk about 
the incompetency maybe of the highway engineers or the city's political agenda to get a new school (laughs) or the bulldoze to the answer to the slum. Do not do this to her. She's far too good a person. All right. Oh, yeah, you've got an alternative. No, but I want to say that actually at the time it was built, people were coming to Chief Fox by train and bus. They Mm -hmm. were not driving. And one of the people who was in the garage told me that the main reason it was good was because she could send her blue trucks out and get to any place in the state within a day and back. Yeah. So that was very important to her. Okay, Elizabeth, you get your way into it. Yeah, at the Connecticut Historical Society, there are the recollections, oral histories of more than 30 former G. Fox employees, as well as her granddaughters, Brooksy and Rena Koopman. And Rena Koopman, in her recollection, talks about she was in New Hampshire and Mount Washington, and some gentleman stopped her, and they were chatting, and he said, yeah, I've moved out of Hartford because of that terrible highway that passes through the city that this woman was in charge of. And she said, well, wait a second, that was my grandmother. And, and she said it would be, as you said, Bill, very very uncharacteristic of her to use her power, quote-unquote, in that way. She was more of a woman who would use that power for social justice issues, but not for something like that. Mm-hmm. If, if, As you say, she probably was on, she was on the Chamber of Commerce with Arthur Lumsden, and in that position, I'm sure that she weighed in as far as the retail business, but no, I, I truly believe that she and the whole family, and in all of the recollections, there was no mention that she had had the kind of influence that I think that rumor suggests. All right, you don't blame somebody, so you pick on a woman. <laughs> All right, so Watch uh, it, very quickly, Michael, we're, uh, <laughs> Michael, I'm running out of time here, but we do want to get your story on the air here, too. Hi, Michael. Hi, Colin. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, uh, I grew up in Windsor Locks, and uh, G-Fox was the store to go to from where I was. My mother worked across the street at uh, Sage Allen's before it was the Corvette building, and my aunt worked at the cafeteria in G, in G. Fox. So we, we went there all the time. And uh, they, I mean, it's where you had to go for Boy Scout gear. They had stamps and coins if you were a collector when you were a kid. But um, my mother took me there when I was, like, between four and five, and I was very impressed by the escalators. <laughs> they were just so grand. And coming down them, at the bottom, I saw a red button, and I pushed it, and I shut off all the escalators <laughs> in the entire building. Oh. And a man in a suit came over and started yelling at me, and my mother got between us and told him that they should fix it. Next time we went back, there was a wire cage and a lock with a key hanging off of that button. Uh, but uh, so, so that, you're that, sort of a reformer. Memory. Yeah, you you affected change here in the city. We're almost out of time here. We have to quickly say, Elizabeth, um, you know, Fox has died. It died for a whole bunch of different reasons, and it was taken over by the May Corporation and stuff like that. But one thing about it was that uh, that Beatrice Fox Auerbach, she didn't believe in chain stores or outlets or uh, other locations, right? She believed so much in the city of Hartford and the downtown, and that's why she wanted that to be a flagship store. She did. Ha- try out a branch store in South Windsor by the name of Fox Core, something like that, Foxo. And it was a flop because, first of all, it was directed at farmers and it opened up at 9.30 in the morning, which was way too late for them. And she just didn't believe in it. But the Hartford store was really a flagship. All right. We've got to wrap it up there. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. And thanks to Lydia Brown for producing. We'll be back tomorrow with the news. Sixth floor, housewares, jewelry, 
Monkeys with Rage Virus. Footwear. End of show.